Please turn with me now to our sermon text in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we delight in knowing, reading, proclaiming and understanding your perfect law. We recognize our many deficiencies. We recognize among them it is ignorance, ignorance of your word, ignorance of your law, ignorance of all the implications and good and necessary consequences of these things, of understanding the whole counsel of God as it bears upon these particular commandments. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have pity upon us in our ignorance And grant us to understand more fully this tenth commandment. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we come at last to the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. And we are thankful indeed that God has given us such a complete law. We think sometimes of false mercy that we extend to people and we say that we only give them so much and will not worry about the rest of it. But God in his holiness gives us a very complete law and so we would be wrong not to complete uh, this examination and teaching of the law. Now again we're in the second table of the law having to do with how we love our neighbor and we mentioned that the heart of that is the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. That has to do with life itself. We mentioned that the seventh has to do with the means of bringing about life. Uh, Then the material which sustains life, thou shalt not steal. Then the words that sustain or else endanger life, uh, you shall not lie. And then finally, the grasping thoughts that endanger life because that's what coveting amounts to. These grasping thoughts that we have, these illegitimate desires are not innocent but actually do endanger life and the things that pertain to life. So again, we said that the commandments go in order, and it may well be the case that the Tenth Commandment, as the last one, is the least serious in itself of the commandments. But of course, one sin is good enough to send you to hell forever, and this particular sin is probably one that people are apt to commit each and every day multiple times, so that's no comfort that it's the least serious in itself. But I want to emphasize the words in itself because of all the commandments, the tenth uh, tends to like company. It rarely is by itself and very often leads to other more serious sin. Let it carry on for any length at all and it is almost certain to bring about a breaking of one of the more serious commandments. And we'll examine that. We'll take the example of the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Virtually every commandment was involved. The whole entirety of God's law, one way or another, was involved in that sin. But considering only the second table sins, we said Adam and Eve committed an act of theft, right? God told them not to eat from this tree, and they did so anyway. That's sin. And then there was the sin that Eve usurped leadership, and Adam abdicated his leadership. And then there was the sin that Satan lied to them and deceived them into these things. 
And let's now mention that final component that Eve coveted that forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, verse 6, it's all about coveting. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. That's it. All right. This is a demonstration that looks, in that sense, can kill. She was coveting. She was looking at that forbidden fruit. And that led to the spiritual and physical death of all mankind. So absolutely, there are consequences to this tenth commandment in itself, perhaps the least serious. But rarely does it remain alone. Now, let me say Eve was not the last person ever to fall into the trap of where covetousness leads. And so, as I mentioned, coveting leads to sinning and all the rest of the second table of the law to theft and immorality and murder. But it's not just the second table of the law that we're concerned with because covetousness also reaches into the heart of the first table of the law. That's what's so interesting about that. Not merely leading to all the rest of the second table, but also to the first because in the way we relate to God, covetousness is idolatry. The essence of covetousness is a lack of contentment with the things the good God has given us. And that is precisely what led Eve down that road. The traction that that the serpent had, that, that Satan had, was precisely in bringing her away from a situation of being content to being in a situation of covetousness. And it was in that very fertile ground that every other sin followed. Well, but the heart of it was already there. It was a heart of idolatry in which we say a good God isn't so good. And the things that he has given me aren't so great. And rather I look for something else. And that she was guilty of idolatry as was all the other things. Given a choice between following that one true God who gives us good things but also withholds certain others. This is the nature of the good God who put them in that garden. He gave them all these good things. 999 fruit trees let's say. And withheld one for his own good and holy reasons. And they said, I don't like that one true living God that gives me the 999 fruit trees. I want some other God that's going to give me the one thing that this God keeps from me. And they were idolaters. And so are we whenever we fall into covetousness. So let's consider now this 10th commandment in these various aspects. Coveting is sin. And, secondly, leads to worse sin. Third, covetousness is idolatry. But fourth, contentment is commanded. So those four uh, points. Coveting is sin and leads to worse sin. Covetousness is idolatry. Contentment is commanded. Well, coveting is sin. Let me read again that wonderful verse 21. You shall not... Uh, um, rather verse 17 you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house his field his male servant his female servant his ox his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's now we have to say first of all that coveting itself is sin let's not go down the road of saying that the problem with covetousness is it leads to something else or is connected with something else but merely coveting in and of itself is itself sin, whether it comes with anything else or not. 
And notice how all-inclusive the commandment is. Wife, house, property, employees, means of doing work. The ox is, you know, in, in that sense a tractor, but stands for us for any of the expensive equipment that we might use for doing, doing work. Means of transportation, the donkey, our cars, and so forth. Or anything that is your neighbor's. And, of course, that's necessary now, this elucidation of these things is necessary as well as the final clause. The Lord could have just said, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. But knowing the way we are and our tendency to excuse ourselves, he, he gives us a very all-inclusive list um, that we might not find excuse from it. Now, I want us to understand that the whole moral law is written in nature. All right? So when we, when we say people who don't have, the, the question is, what do people who don't have the word of God, what happens to them when they die? The, the reality is, if they haven't had their sins forgiven through faith in Christ, they will certainly go to hell. And the, and the answer is, on what basis, or the, question, the further question is, on what basis? The answer to that is, they have the law in their hearts and written in nature. And so the moral law, all of it, is in one way or another present. But as you go down the list from the highest on each table to the lowest, all, it becomes less distinct. All right? Everyone knows you ought to, that there is a God, whether they want to, to, to admit to it or not, and that you ought to worship him in some way. But as you go down, it becomes a little bit less clear. And so people are fuzzy on, on the Sabbath, for instance. And likewise, uh, it's very clear that thou shalt not murder. Every society on earth understands that aspect very clearly. And as you go down the table, it becomes just a little bit less distinct. And covetousness is in, yeah, it's in that category. And so Paul says in Romans 7, 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. And what he's saying is he wasn't aware in his human situation, in his sinful blindness of, of this uh, aspect of the law of covetousness, unless the law in its perfection had said it. And therefore, the law uh, then defines to us in its perfection and brings more people under conviction of sin. Now, we don't know the, the rest of that story, but uh, isn't it a, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if there would be people who would... Uh, hear a, a sermon having to do with covetousness and come to conviction of sin because they'd never really considered what sinners they are until they, they found out that covetousness itself is also a sin. Well, I said coveting is itself a sin, but it's rarely alone because, secondly, I want to say that coveting leads to worse sin. The example, for instance, of the sin of Achan and Joshua in Joshua 7.19 Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth of the min- in the midst of my tent with a silver underneath it. Right? Think about that. So here he is. They've been told, they certainly do not touch any of these things. And yet he does so. This sin of theft brought upon him the wrath of God. And he was soon to die. And all of his things with him. But that happened because he first coveted them. You see. And he 
makes, gives glory to God actually in, in admitting and confessing these things. Well, it's not just theft. It's also the example of David and Bathsheba. That started with coveting as well in 2 Samuel 11.2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Well, it doesn't say so precisely, but that's what he was doing. He was coveting his neighbor's wife. And that leads to adultery. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And that adultery leads to murder. Second Samuel eleven fourteen. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in that letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Well, friends, that all these sins, some of the worst imaginable, from one who is called a man after God's own heart. Okay, we're not speaking about a habitual murderer. We're not speaking about a habitual adulterer or a wicked man at all, but one of the holiest men of whom when we, we sing through the Psalms, the majority of those words have come from his pen. And again, a type of the Messiah, yet he fell into these things. And it began, well, maybe we could say it began with laziness, but it certainly began with covetousness. And therefore, these things are not innocent. It's sinful in itself, and and almost always, if left, leads to worse sin. And thirdly, covetousness is idolatry. It just gets worse and worse. It's sin itself. It leads to worse sin, but it's also idolatry. That's what it says in Ephesians 5.5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. How about that? Guess we did. We didn't know that. Paul said before he didn't. He didn't know apart from the law of God that covetousness was sin. And I bet there are many among us who didn't realize that covetousness is amounts in God's eyes to idolatry. But that's what it is. It's confirmed in Colossians three. Therefore, put to death your members who which are on the earth: fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now the explanation is here. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, don't forget about that. All sin leads to the wrath of God, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. All right? So God is, some God of some, some fashion is in charge of what we have. And as I mentioned, some people don't like what the real God has given to them. And so out of their covetousness, they pursue the, the idols of this world, which promise them something else. And they serve these idols, hoping to get what the things that the real God doesn't give them. Uh, not knowing, not believing that he has good reasons for withholding those few things that he does withhold from us. It's idolatry. Well, the example also then of the rich farmer in Luke 12. Notice the, I don't know if you, you are conscious of the warning that God, that, that to the Holy Spirit gives in the lips of Jesus Christ himself at the beginning of this, but listen very carefully in Luke twelve fifteen, He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. It's no minor thing. Take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, Ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? 
So he said, I will do this. I will pour down, pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be these things which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then, he said, in this context, he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Well, that's really important, isn't it? Because lots of us would say we do worry about this life, and we put it under the heading of anxiety. We are anxious about this and about that. But actually, in the word of God, it comes under the heading and context of covetousness, under a very stern warning from the Lord himself to beware about covetousness. And where it leads in this case is not merely, not merely theft, not merely adultery, not merely murder, but of eternal hell. Because that's on the lips of Lord Jesus where covetousness leads. Not only in the death of other people, but in the the eternal and spiritual death of the idolater, of the covetous man like this rich farmer, whom the Lord declares to him, fool. Fool, your thoughts and your anxieties and your ambitions were all in the things of this world because of your covetousness. And because all of your attentions were put in this world, now soon enough you will die. And what will you give in exchange for your eternal soul? You have nothing to give me. And instead, he will go into hell eternally, and you will have none of these things. But there the face, the wrath of God forevermore. Friends, it is more deadly than you think. Many, many people have gone to hell because of their covetousness, because they come to church, maybe, and they hear the gospel. They hear about the life and the, the death in which Christ paid for our sins and his resurrection on the third day. And I make this simple proclamation that I mentioned this morning, which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You sinners, you can be saved. All you have to do is receive this gift of grace and, and your sins will be forgiven. And you know what the heart of covetous men and women say? It sounds okay. And I have this little career I'm pursuing. Or I have this little sport that I'm pursuing and... You know, if I were to be part of this church, if I were to believe that and become part of that, well, that would become endangered because I want to do these things on the Lord's Day. Or I I want to carry on giving myself holy these membership vows of which some are about to take, in which I say bring your time, talent, and treasure into the church as you are able by God to do so. The covetous man says, I don't think I want to do that. I want all that for myself. I want my time for me, and I want my talent for me, and my treasure for me and me alone. And therefore, they walk away. Rather than join this church or any good church, mainly rather than believing in the gospel, they prefer to have their things in this world and to safeguard them. Friends, you can't safeguard both of those things. right? And that's why no man can have two masters. That's why the the Lord says you have to hate your life in this world in order to take up your cross and bear it daily, in order to choose him. Take your pick. You can't have both of them. And covetousness will kill you in the end if you let it. Because covetousness is the thing that keeps you 
from following the Lord Jesus Christ with a whole and perfect heart, which is what he calls you to do. A whole and perfect and simple heart, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when all these things eventually will be added to you, and believe me, they are added to you. To covet is to follow after another God, and to follow after another God is our spiritual death warrant. And that's why, among other things, it is so dangerous. Fourthly, contentment is commanded. Right? Now, contentment is itself the antidote to all these things. We've said that, that covetousness is forbidden, and really it's, it's thrice forbidden in different ways. But on the other hand, on the positive side of the coin, contentment is positively a command of the Lord, of which you're not doing, you are also being disobedient. It's, it's commanded, be content. First Timothy 6.5, I'll just read this at length. Men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith in their creediness and pierced them through with many sorrows. What a thought that for the desire of the things of this world, the people have strayed from the faith. I'm always struck by the low price that Judas agreed to. Now these, these Jewish leaders were, were not about to pay a, a penny more than what they could get from, from Judas. They knew how to strike a good bargain and they... They surely must have congratulated themselves of getting Judas down to to 30 pieces of silver. But the fact that he would be willing to sell out, to betray his master, to seal his own death warrant for all eternity on the basis of 30 pieces of silver is beyond my imagination. But beloved, people do that sort of thing all the time. Satan offers them some little trinket that isn't even worth all that much. Because although Satan, yes, has all the things of this world in his hand, he has a limited supply, unlike our Lord, who has an unlimited supply of all things. He has a limited supply, and he, he, he deals with people in accordance with what bargain he thinks he can strike, and he always gives you less than what you think you're getting. But he gives some trinket, and people will follow that trinket off the cliff right into hell. What an amazing thing. Therefore, they fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. But what is it on the other hand? On the other hand, godliness with contentment is great gain. It really is. Contentment is the thing to have. You see, people are wrongly imagining that they will be content. The thing that they're secretly wanting, the thing that deep down inside they really want is contentment. And they're imagining that one more little thing will bring them to the state of contentment. That they would be content if they had that one thing and Satan is dangling it before their face and therefore they go after that. But of course it's just a mirage. It's false. Contentment cannot be had by the abundance of things that we own. Rather the Lord has the real thing. And he promises to give to his people who desire it, who seek after it, a wonderful contentment. In which our eyes are open to the 
and the enormous weight of glory and goodness that he's given to us in Christ Jesus. We have that our, our eyes and, and hearts are open to receive the reality of the infinite blessing that is to those who are in Christ Jesus. What good thing has he withheld from us? What thing does he not give to us now and in all of eternity? We have a good God who just, if you, you think about Satan who stays up night and day trying to figure out ways to swindle us from good things and to, to murder us in his lies. Our good God, though he does not need to, and I speak only anthropomorphically, he, as it were, stays up night and day figuring out ways to communicate everything that can be in, in ways that I couldn't, have, couldn't fathom. And when I read some of the things that he has intends for us and how high he intends to bring us and how close to himself and everything that he bestows on Christ he's going to bestow on us as well, I, I, don't, I wouldn't dare to imagine that such things would be ours. And yet he declares very plainly that they shall be. This is our God. We should be content. And that's why we must remember what the real God is like. That's Hebrews 13, by the way, the other text that we read. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord, the Lord is our helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You see the point. The only reason why we'd ever covet is because we have a lack of contentment with what we, which we have. And that implies that we don't think much of the God who gives them these things to us, just like Eve didn't. She was convinced this God must not be a very good God because he's withholding really good things from me. In fact, the thing that is most important in this life is the one thing that he is withholding from me. What a lie. And so it is. And we, we go after some other God who is offering to us some other thing. He's either, because this God is either unwilling or unable to give us that which is good. But the promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us, right? Again, he's either unable or unwilling to give us good things. You have to believe one of those two things if you ever covet. And basically, you'd have to be wrong. You'd have to be crazy to say that God is unable to give them. And then instead you say that he's unwilling. But guess what? God has promised he will never leave you nor forsake you. He is always with you. And therefore you know that that couldn't be true either. God is going to take care of us. Matthew seven eleven. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's his heart. He is a good father. He is going to give good things to his children. Or James 1.17, every good, every, good every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now these comparisons, in particular the Matthew 7 text, are with human fathers. And you take the most generous father that you know, the most soft touch out there, who gladly gives uh, to his, his children perhaps more than he, he ought to. And God compares himself with that and says, I'm, I'm more than that. I'm more than that. I never give beyond what I ought to. But I know how to give such good gifts, such wonderfully perfect gifts. I'm so incredibly, fantastically wealthy that it, it hurts me none to give these things. I, in fact, love to give these things which do hurt me and cost me. Cost me everything. The death of my own beloved son. I'm willing to do that, even that for these unworthy children of mine. There's nothing that's going to keep me from being generous to them. 
But I am going to do it in a way that doesn't lead them away from me, that doesn't push them away from me. And beloved, you have to understand, human fathers, although we sometimes do it imperfectly, particularly children and young people, we sometimes do it imperfectly. But the reason why we withhold some things from you is not because they're so good and useful and helpful to you, but precisely because they are harmful to you and will take your heart away from us and from our God. And therefore, we withhold those few things. It's not because we don't love you. It's precisely because we do. And that is the heart of our good Heavenly Father who would stop at nothing to give good and useful gifts to his own beloved children. Well, what do we say in all this? Well, the applications, we turn again to those duties required. And it begins with a full contentment of our own condition. We've already mentioned Hebrews 13. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So a full contentment for their own condition. And may the Lord help us to have that. It's something to be prayed for each and every day. It's not one of those things you stumble into by accident uh, contentment. Some people struggle mightily for years and years, but friends, it is something to strive after and to uh, uh, lay hold of with both hands and all of your heart. If you struggle with contentment, make it your daily prayer to get there. And such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor, that's the other thing, a charitable frame towards our neighbor. That all of our inward motions and affections touching him tend to and further all that good which is his. Beloved, no good thing should ever come to you that soon enough uh, your next thought is, I wish that others could have this very thing. And if there is something that I can do to forward that, then I would be glad to do it. That's what the heart of God's children should be towards your neighbor. And if that is your continual thought then you will also be drawn away from covetousness. If you are fully content in your own situation and your continual desire is to improve the situation one way or another, whatever way happens to be in your hands, just reminded of the multiplicity of gifts in our church. And whatever it is that you have, then your, your desire is to give those, those things and to help those around you. If that's your heart, then you're not going to likely be uh, covetous. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's a portrait of love. That's our definition of love that we have from the definitive discussion of what love looks like towards our neighbor and it certainly does not envy, has nothing to do with that. Secondly, the sins forbidden, the sins forbidden in the Ten Commandments are discontent with our own estate. And I mentioned one example of, of David. There's also the example of, uh, so here's a good king, a man after God's own heart, falling into great sin because of covetousness. There's also exa- an example of the great wicked king, Ahab, in 1 Kings 21, he also coveted something which led to murder. So there's discontent with their own estate and envying. Galatians 5.26, let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another and grieving the good of our neighbor. That's, that's the other thing. Let us not ever 
grieve at the good of our neighbor. Psalm 112, 9 to 10. He is dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked see it and are grieved. That's a picture of the wicked. Whenever a wicked person sees someone else being lifted up, sees someone else receiving good things, in whatever way you could say it, in terms of their family, in terms of their career, in terms of their, their material things, whatever it might be, their honor given to them, and they're grieved. Because any good thing that they don't have that's given to another is a great grief to them. Let it not be a, a description that is given also to God's people. And again, I say, there are churches that are characterized by these things. And let it be far, far from us. And a, a spirit of true love just pervading us. In which our great delight is to see others raised higher and higher in every good right way. Together with all inordinate motions and affections for anything that is his. It's interesting in Romans 13.9. All the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandments, they're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, If, in fact, the whole of the second table has to do with loving our neighbor, what does it mean, then, if we covet? Since that's against the law, it means we must not be loving our neighbor. Again, that's not something we often put together in our our heads, but we need to. Covetousness, not loving. All right? If I'm loving someone, I couldn't possibly be coveting their things. But if I am coveting anyone's things, you know for certain you're not loving at that moment. Let's be clear about that. Well, then thirdly, we looked at the, the duties required and the sins forbidden. Let us remember one more time that Christ came to save covetous people like us. As I truly, I hope we're convinced. I hope we're convicted uh, about this sin. And I hope we see the seriousness of it. But we remember that even so, listen to this, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, okay, that's not me, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, okay, maybe not me, nor thieves, not me, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will will inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, you can go through that list and say, not me, not me, not me, not me. But can you really go far enough through covetous? Can you really say that you've not coveted? And you know what happens to those people? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the word of God declares. The covetous will not inherit the the kingdom of God. End of story. If any of those things apply, you will never inherit heaven based on your own works. But thankfully, that isn't the end of the story with regard to someone else's works. And thankfully, that's not even the end of that text in 1 Corinthians 6, because it goes on in verse 11. And such were some of you. Such, some, such were all of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were cleansed from these things by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you were to do a web search for covetous and you were the very epitome of it, you were the first thing that was found because your whole life has been characterized by covetousness, 
Yet we can come to the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the chief of sinners, the chief of idolaters, and be cleansed from all of these things. That's the beauty of the gospel. Justification by grace alone, through faith, in Christ alone. And God makes his declaration. He's not a coveter anymore. He makes his declaration in his justice to say, no, no. Though those things once pertained, those those things were true, and he would most certainly not inherit the kingdom of God. I've decided to send someone else to pay that price, to bear that penalty, and to make him eligible for the kingdom of God. And that is true of everyone who receives the gospel in faith. Now, I want also for us to remember that second use of the law in Romans chapter 7. I mentioned, Paul says, I wouldn't have known covetousness in the law unless the law had said you shall not covet and it goes on let me say how it goes on in verse 8 but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire for apart from the law sin was dead I was alive once without the law but when the commandment came sin revived and I died and the commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death for taking a for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Well, these words are a little bit hard to follow, I understand, but the point is this. There was an aspect of God's law that reached Paul in particular and brought him to conviction of sin. And God, even years later, may have used these things to bring him uh, to saving faith in Christ as he was brought down to his knees um, before the Lord on that Damascus road. Well, friends, how I pray that as we consider these things, that we would be brought to a true and full conviction of our sins, perhaps even through an examination of our obedience or lack thereof of this particular sin. And I think, I, I don't know for certain, I can't proclaim, but I think that the rich young ruler was just such a case. You remember how it was. You, it's puzzling if you read it and you don't, you're not following what's going on, that Jesus is interacting with him as, as trying to bring him to conviction of sin with regard to the second use of the law. And therefore, he, the things that he says and the things that he, he isn't, are, he's not saying are designed to do that, in particular with covetousness. All right, Luke 18, 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Good question. No one is good but one that is God. Are you calling me God? I am, but are you, do you know that? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Crickets, crickets. He's left something out, right? And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. I am not guilty of any particular and notable sin. Now, that's not true, of course. We know in the fullness of God's law, he's probably broken every one of them. But in terms of some notable sin of which he could be brought before some council, he hasn't done any of that with regard to these things. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. One thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. What happened? This man who came to come into eternal life, that was his intention in all of this, and all he has to do is sell what he has, and he'll have it. What happens? But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And what does that mean? He was also very covetous. And that was the one little thing that Jesus left out in his summary of the law. Thou shalt not covet. 
Because that was a thing that so much of his sin was being poured into. And that we know that sin is like this pressure, this steam building up in our wicked hearts. And sometimes it has one outlet and sometimes it has another. As we have ten fingers or there are ten commandments. And sometimes all the steam is shooting out of this one and sometimes this one. And just because maybe it's not murder, we imagine that way on the other side that maybe you're not looking at this finger, which is covetousness. But so was this rich young ruler. And all of his sin was being poured into that. And it was demonstrated in the fact of his idolatry. Given the choice between the one true living God and his eternal life and his things which did he pick. That's covetousness. But it, was that the end of the story? I don't think it actually was. Looks pretty bad at the moment. Looks pretty bad. But you know what Mark 10, 21 says? Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, I know that there are some commentators who would say that doesn't prove anything. But friends, he would be the only person in Scripture whom it says specifically that it notes that Jesus loved him who was lost. If that's the case, if he was lost, he would be the only one of which it was specifically noted that Jesus loved him in that way. Unless he eventually came to faith. And friends, so I think he may well have come to faith. And if so, it would have been because of his conviction of sin regarding covetousness that Jesus' sermon worked in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, may many be brought to a similar conviction and to a similar faith in God's goodness. And may we pursue contentment. Above. We pursue God himself, of course, but we pursue contentment. Don't listen to the media. All those advert campaigns. What is the war about? I mentioned this in the Deuteronomy sermon. So there's an ad campaign. There must be a war then, right? Well, what's the war? The war is on your contentment. That's what the advert campaigns are. And the more that you listen to those things, the more you'll be discontent. It happens so easily. But on the other hand, listen to God's word. Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my, ear, my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. And may that be the case for all of us. Let's pray. Great and gracious, generous, communicative God, we love you and we thank you for all that you have given to us. Lord, what good thing have you withheld from us? You have kept all of your promises to us, and even those things that you've not promised, you have you've given above and beyond all these things. And Lord, the only ones who have ever claimed in any way that you are miserly are Satan himself and those who are deceived by him. Your people couldn't imagine such a thing. We know the truth. We know, Lord, that if we gave all the day long, all the rest of our life, gave everything that we had, we would never begin to approach your generosity. Lord, we rather confess once again that we are idolaters because we are covetous. We confess once again that Christ is able to save even the worst idolater and covetous man. And how we pray, Lord, that you would grant to us rather that wonderful gift of contentment. Lord, we see the world around us buying into every sort of thing and this, this ongoing desire to be content. 
and never finding it and only getting worse and worse. But Lord, you offer this thing free of charge. We pray that we'd receive this gift along with the giver of the gift. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.